0: You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 026, where I continue my conversation with Scott Billington, co founder and managing partner of Covenant Capital Management. This
1: episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager Niels Kostrup Larsen. (laughs)
0: talk about these long-term time frames and um yeah I, I i i can imagine it's not easy to get investors to
1: to share that horizon so to speak because if you want to take not easy out and replace it with impossible yeah. then you'd be correct yeah but that's the business that i've chosen sure I I mean, I know full and well that the next time we get hot mm. for 24 months, yeah. we'll attract a lot of money. Mm. That's a fact. Yeah. And the next, we'll keep attracting money as long as we, quote unquote, stay hot. Mm. And then the next time we have a, you know, a drawdown, which will come, that's guaranteed
2: mm.
1: and it'll last for. X amount of period, we'll lose a hmm. third of the money that we had. Yeah. That's just the fact of the matter. I mean, we attempt, we try, we talk about these things with our clients, but, but it is probable that the homo sapien is not particularly hardwired very well for trading.
0: Why did you choose such a difficult path, Scott?
1: <laughs> no one's ever called me a smart person. <laughs> uh, they're obviously huge advantage. I mean... The, the industry is extremely high-paying. Yeah. I like the – I've always been inter- you know, interested in – I remember when I was like 10 or 11 years old, my mom tells a story that I was homesick from school, and I told her to go to the library and bring home every book on gambling she could find. Okay. And I distinctly remember being like 11 or 12 and sitting with a notebook and, and a book open trying to find some system to beat a roulette wheel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I've always been attracted and had a a decent aptitude for for mathematically based but unknown future outcomes. Right. And so that that lends you know in our society that that lends itself towards trading and investments. <laughs> True. And you know it's a so you know, if I find the thing fascinating, I also find it fascinating to, to, be able to to you know. It takes a lot of discipline, yeah, and it takes a lot of self control because I have opinions like anybody else, mm. and, and and I will think, oh God, we got this trade. This one can't win. They, they you know, this and that's going to happen, and the Russians invaded this, and this will never win, <laughs> and and it's a it's a. You know, it's a challenge. I mean, there's the huge advantage, I think, to a systematic method is that it's an achievement to be able to put those things aside and continue to methodically apply our method.
0: Yeah. man, no, absolutely. I think people are. If
1: I was going to say there's anything that I'm proudest of that we've Mm -hmm. done at Covenant Capital, and we hit on it earlier, Mm. you know, go look through your hedge funds and see how many of them lost 20% their second year. Yeah. The answer is one, and Mm. that's ours. Yeah. And we did not change our trading philosophy a bit yeah we did not change following the method a bit and we actually you know i made fun of the in case of emergency break glass (laughs) but we had taken the time to write that out and we actually Mm. did it yeah and more than that it worked sure because here we are and and the real tragedy would have been assuming we do have a reasonable model in the future or the ensuing 15 years yeah. argued that we did sure. is if we'd had to fold then. Yeah. And most people would have. Yeah. And by most, probably ninety percent. So yeah. that's you know, that's a time I'm really I'm I'm very proud of. And we've we've developed our business in a vacuum. I mean we're headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee, for God's sake. I mean <laughs> you really couldn't have picked something worse. And, you know, We've got an office in Chicago, but, but you know, Brince and I have lived in different towns yeah. since 2002. You know, we have – neither of our dads was a partner at Goldman Sachs. We right. did not have – you know, it didn't like we went and worked for, you know, George Soros and then spun off and somebody kicked us $50 million day one. Mm. You, you know, we really did build this up from a bootstrap – kind of in a vacuum, and like I said, in retrospect, we never should have tried it, but Mm. we did, and and at least thus far, it's worked out pretty well, and, you know, those are, those are the things I'm, I'm probably proudest of, personally, of what we've done with this. Yeah. And we've really stuck to our guns, and, and we've had a, you know, there's always, you know, I remember in the mid-2000s, everybody was investing in option sellers. Right. So everybody ran to, well, it's an option seller. You got to do this, and I'm like, you realize all of those guys are going broke. No, 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 this guy's figured it out. <laughs> sure, he did. But 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 our sales aren't gone, and they're not every. I mean, some of them. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm not But in general, most of that's got vetted out, and and you know, I suspect those may be coming back. The market's been going up lately, but you know. Short term. Oh, you got to get short term. You got to get this mean reversion short term trading. This is this is the new thing, and they'll think of some reason. Oh, well, the central bank now because of that, this doesn't work anymore. I could pull out a futures magazine from nineteen ninety one, declaring trend following dead. Mm. And if you really think about it, when you if you wanted to scientifically look at it and talk about repeatability, Mm. uh, peer reviewed, meaning that peer-reviewed ability to repeat it trend following is probably with the possible exception of value stock and you know the most successful method that's ever been created mm. it has been replicated time and time and time again
0: but i mean it's a slightly dis- different uh, topic than, than than where we start but i think it's an important one so i'd like to explore it a little bit and Although you probably know that, that my bias is, of course, also uh, that I think, you know, trend following is is a highly robust and, and sustainable strategy, if I was going to take the opposite side of the discussion here, um, and that is because we obviously hear the argument every time that people say, oh, trend following is dead, and, and out comes the the veterans of the industry and saying, yeah, we heard this before, and it's, it never comes true. But we also know that decompression of or compression of uh, volatility is not great for, for trend followers. And we have to admit, maybe with you as one of the exceptions, but we have to admit that some of the people who've been around for 20, 30 years have had significantly larger drawdowns in the past few years than they've seen in their 30 year career. Some of them have even folded uh, and and stopped because they thought it was going, it, it was getting, you know, too difficult. So, the question is of course can can one always argue and say yeah sure it's going to come back it's it's going to be fine i mean or is there as you alluded to before i mean i, I guess there is always the risk that you know markets uh, or or something uh, has actually fundamentally changed i'm not saying i'm i'm a strong believer here i'm just
1: saying no, that i mean that that's it's- listen in the in the midst of any drawdown that will always be a great and valid question mm and and i always start by saying look there is i don't know the future yeah i can make my best guess i would argue vehemently that my guess is very rational mm. but just because something has worked doesn't mean that it will work forever mm. across any board we would be lot of business long before there was enough statistical evidence to suggest trend following didn't work right i mean If you took the position today that trend following doesn't work, that would be an extraordinarily irrational statement, Mm. because the empirical evidence before you strongly suggests that it does.
0: Yet a lot of investors take that stand, and that's my yeah
1: right. But but they they bought tons of collateralized debt obligations, (laughs) right?
0: So they did, yeah.
1: I mean, hundreds of trillions of dollars of them. Yeah. They ran models that, that didn't even have an assumption possibility of a real estate price going down. Mm. And and again, it's easy to pick on things in retrospect. Sure. But we all also I mean, we also bought lots of Enron stock, mm. didn't we? But if we
0: look at, I mean, if we, if we talk about sort of evidence and, 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 and I think we both agree that certain market environments uh, is not good for, for trend following and, and certainly compression of volatility is, is, is one of them.
1: So well, I don't um, know why that, I don't, our stuff, volatility is bad. I, I mean, except, I mean, it depends, but you, you want volatility post-trade entry. Right. Not pre. Yeah. So volatility pre-trade entry is bad. Mm. And, and ultimately, volatility tends to increase as a trend increases. Mm. So I think people have for years – now, I have not studied this, so this is a hypothesis of mine. But I think people have totally – it's like lightning makes my driveway wet. Because every time I see lightning, my driveway is wet. Mm. Sure. I, I think that that when silver gets to 50 – volatility goes up a lot mm. but the trend follower has made money because silver got to 50 not because volatility went up so it's a correlation right. rather than a causation sure and the best trends the ones where you make the most smoothest money are kind of the period bef- right before it goes crazy sure when it just goes up a little bit kind of every single week Nobody really talks about it for a while, and here it goes and goes. You see what I mean? So I I mean, I think it's a perfect example. I don't think volatility compression – I mean, now, if you mean volatility, meaning the high in crude oil over the last two years is – 104 the lows 89 yes that's not very good that's sure. a choppy sideways market yeah it's price range compression i guess i'm referring okay, now to, then yeah. sure the, if there aren't big trends yeah. then trend followers aren't going to do well exactly would, that, that would be very difficult to argue against
0: yeah no, absolutely. but i would
1: say this is what people forget is your largest drawdown is always in front of you mm. except you're going to retire or die at some point <laughs> Right, sure, I mean, I mean, if I had traded let's say that my grandkids went on to trade our method, there will be a far larger drawdown between now and my great grandkids trading my model than I've seen in my model up to now because mm. it's more time, yeah, right there are more instances sure now there will also be a winning period better than we've seen, yeah, so the idea that well, someone's having their largest drawdown than they've ever had, therefore this doesn't work. Well, did it not work when they had their last largest drawdown? And why did we think they were never going to have a drawdown larger than their previous largest? Mm. Because my returns are going to be distributed, and and in any trading, the variance is so much larger than the drift. you got to remember that, like, Two and a half percent of the time, I'm going to be three deviations to the bad. Mm. Well, that's terrible performance. I mean, so I think that that there are so many things here. I mean, the first is trend following gets held to a standard. If the stock market got held to that standard, the S&P wouldn't exist. I mean, I'll just take us for example. Sure. We made equity highs in May of 13. Yeah. Okay. And we're probably I, I don't keep you know fifteen percent off that high. Yeah. And you're questioning, I mean, not you, but, but yeah, yeah. one like, "Well, does what you do even work anymore?" And <laughs> and that's where I get back to the statement: is we make our money from the fat tail distribution of price moves, and there's a slight dependency in price moves. Hmm. Okay, all trend followers, yep. we would argue, do. Okay. That evidence is evidenced across all markets we trade. Yen, the same way I trade cotton and cocoa, Mm. across decades of time. I think AQR did a study that I'm sure you're familiar with that went back hundreds of years, and it doesn't prove, but that suggested that trend following would have worked. Mm. There are definitely anecdotal examples of – I mean, I can't imagine trend following in Civil War cotton wouldn't have been pretty good, (laughs) and certainly the South Sea bubble and things like that. So there's reasonable evidence, you know that 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 this idea of large outlier moves. I mean, the fat tail distribution of price moves is as academically verified as anything that could possibly be. Now that doesn't mean it has to happen in the future, mm. right? But so you've got this massive body of evidence. Furthermore, I mean, if you think about a scientific, like if you did a chemistry experiment and you said, hey. A plus B equals C, the the big thing to prove your experiment would be, could your peers run the same experiment, get the same results, Mm. right? So now think about trend following. It has been almost without question the most repeatable method of trading probably ever invented. Mm. Not only through all the turtles, but I mean, guys like me, I was like, oh, well, most of these people are trend followers. Let's try that. (laughs) Sure. I mean, we challenge – I mean, so we think that whatever it is that made all that work ended May 31st of 2013. Mm. Really, that was the day.
0: <laughs> it's a very, very interesting discussion, isn't it? Because you and I agree on the answer to that, yet most of the world don't.
1: Niels, what I would yeah. say is, is, is it's hard – I mean – Obviously, anybody can disagree with what they want. Sure, but but what is your basis for this? I mean, what lo- what is your logical reasoning for that that change that day? Mm. And then I would simply say, like, look, here's the monthly variance of my returns. Our performance. I mean, we're not even two deviations to the bad.
0: Sure.
1: In fact, it's shocking that we've done that. We haven't had a worse period, to be honest with you. <laughs> CTAs and trend following—they're really the ugly redheaded stepchildren of the financial world. Right. All the Markowitz and all those guys and all their bull about efficient markets and all this, the idea that I could slap a couple of moving average on a chart and make money is, it's abhorrent to them. Mm. They would want to vomit. <laughs> it's really the case. Sure. I might not make enough for the risks that I, I mean, I don't, but I can turn a profit. mm you see what I mean? Sure. And furthermore, these you know massive loss. I mean, they're not even that massive. You're talking about being down. I think we lost two percent last year. Mm. Well, we spent three and a half in 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 transaction costs. Sure. Now that doesn't do a lot for our client. I mean, we obviously hope to do better. But if if your idea is I'm going to invest in trend following, I'm never going to lose more than. Ten percent in a year, you need to find something else. Yeah, that's not for you. And why I'd even go so far to say, and you need to stay away from mark to the market passive investments. Yeah, the reason that that you may have had this small business that has made a bunch of money is no one was in your front yard with a bid and offer on your business every day, mm. so you didn't see the fluctuations that actually occurred. Same with houses. Sure. I mean, you see what I mean? Sure. So, I mean, Warren Buffett gets to have 50% drawdowns apparently on it <laughs> twice a decade. Sure. And, and he gets quoted and, you know, he's... And, and I'm not saying he isn't a marvelous investor or whatever, but what I'm saying is we get held to this standard that it doesn't seem equal.
0: Yeah. Now, um, we've talked about sort of very broadly uh, about the the entries and and so on and so forth and I I just want to talk about one more thing about that and it's a little bit about uh, position sizing. Um, I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of position sizing but I'm not so sure with your strategy how you view that. I mean is, is part of the success of a system like yours the way you size the positions?
1: Well, once you have a non-random method of entry and exit, and that could be my macroeconomic analysis, Mm -hmm. or it could be my insider knowledge of a recent crop report. Mm. But once I've got that, my whole outcome is going to be determined by position sizing. Mm. And in fact, I would far rather have a small edge with proper position sizing than vice versa. I mean, in fact, if you missize your positions, you can actually turn a positive expected outcome into a loser.
2: Mm.
1: Like, let's imagine that you and I were flipping a coin,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and I was going to pay you six to five on heads. Right. But you risk 30% of your bankroll on every flip. Mm. So you got $1,000, and you risk 300 Mm -hmm. and you win, right? So you get times 1.2. You get 360, now you got 1360, you risk 30%, that's 408, and you lose. Mm. You're down to 952. You have edge, and you did not have bad luck. Mm. The expected outcome came, sure. but you lost money yeah. because you're risking too much. Now to me, that is an insightful and frightening and kind of amazing, like wow, I risk too much. And I took a winner and turned it into a loser. Mm. You see what I mean? Yeah. So for every example you could have where, where there are an unknown future wins and losses, there's a perfect amount you should risk, an optimal level. Mm. And I think in my coin flip example, I think it's 8%. I think if you risk 8%, you make more money. And if you risk 9 you even make less than if you risk 8 Okay. Because that's in the nature of geometric returns. If I lose 20, I got to make 25 to get back.
0: Sure. Had you figured this out f- from the outset? Did you know uh, the importance of, of position sizing it? And and has that changed a lot over time?
1: Yes, I knew the importance of it. And the way we've done it has not changed. There's some things we do now, I think, in the way we size the position and the way we look at risk that that I think are, you know, miles ahead of what we used to do Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but you know we we always have used the standard fixed fraction of the account size to risk Mm. and i've always been aware of what our optimal level was Mm. and and you know because risk to return is not a linear you know it's not a linear function which you can see from the from the the coin flip example but but risk of ruin and volatility or, you know, and losses are. How do you
0: manage the risk with such a long time frame? How do you, when you put on a position, I assume you, you have some level of stop loss, um, but uh, that I'm yeah, not you're just going to have,
1: so you're going to, you're going to put a position on, you're gonna have a point at which you get out. And then we're going to look at, basically we look at every position to every stop every day. And we say, that's the amount of money we have at risk. Yeah. And then we have, maximums on a position and a portfolio level and if we hit those maximums then what we do is reduce position size to to fit them back under the curve can you shed some light
0: on just to give sort of our listeners a, a, an idea of what that risk looks like i mean how how big a risk or 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 indeed how small a risk do you actually see uh, in running a portfolio like
1: this well, that and that's where we get into, I mentioned, you know, the original program has a 25% maximum. Right. The aggressive has a 30, and the optimal has a 95. Right. So that's exactly how we change between programs. Okay. And then, you know, obviously, if an investor wanted some number in between there, we could either create it for them or they could invest X amount in, you know, one and a different than another
0: do you treat risk individually by market meaning so you put on a position in corn and you have a certain level of risk and you manage your trailing stop um but you trade you treat that independently of what's going on in other parts of the maybe the same sector or other parts yeah. of your portfolio
1: i think what we've basically found is for trend following our markets tend to correlate higher when they matter to us mm. So like when I'm in a position that's, I mean, I don't care about corn and silver's correlation when when I'm not in them, yeah. right? And I really don't care when I'm in them. The main time they're going to be, a, you know, risk is going to build in a position as a trend goes our way. Mm. So our stop's not going to move up as quickly as the market might move in our favor. Sure. So when the risk of positions really matters to us is when they're in the midst of, of decent-sized winning trades, right? Because yep. risk is built up in in multiple positions at the same time. Yeah. And what we found is, is when that occurs, the correlations of the markets increase mm-hmm. so that, you know, silver and corn might show – I mean, the, the example I remember the best is in 2005, right. we had a huge winning trade in the Nikkei and a huge winning trade in sugar. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't probably think of two markets you would think were more different, would <laughs> be more zero. But I can sure. promise you, when we were in them and those big trades were running up, they were correlated as they could. I mean, they were dead step and step. Right. right. And so what we think is when you do your sec- – we basically assume that every sector is highly correlated. Okay. So when we look at it, we look at it on an individual position. Mm. Because again, we're looking at that optimal level. We're saying I know in our method that I never want to risk more than X on a given position. Because mm. that would be like risking the 30% in the coin flip.
2: Mm.
1: You see what I mean? Yeah. So I'm never gonna let an individual then I also know as a portfolio as a whole, I never want to risk more. You know, you know, the way we're going to control drawdown is At no time from an equity high are we ever going to risk more than a preset level of your account's value.
0: Mm.
1: Does that make, you see what I mean? Sure. Does it worry you
0: that what you described there is probably the exact opposite of what big financials, you know, institutions do in terms of managing risk where they put everything together and they try and work out some kind of smart expected risk taking into account all sorts of parameters which we know (laughs) that when uh, you know things get tough um, never work well then
1: no (laughs) how are they done with that yeah i mean that's we look at risk as as a on a much what i i mean there's no reason for me to look at a derivative risk right i know where the market is and i know where i'm getting out yeah that's the money i have at risk Mm. So that's the money that needs to be, that needs to be controlled. Yeah. And so I, I don't know why I would go a step beyond that.
0: No, no, I agree, and uh, but I, I do think that it's interesting that um, that the systemic risk, at least I would say, in the system seems to be increasing with the way that uh, a lot of people are looking at risk, which is actually completely opposite of what many CTAs are doing and, yeah. and so and on. So
1: I mean, and so. I think in those you know, in those situations, basically you have people that are looking for an excuse to put more on yeah. because they they get paid on the upside and they don't have to pay the downside. Sure, exactly, yeah. I mean, if I'm the head of bonds at, at – I mean, we saw that. I mean, I'm, I'm the head of bonds at Bear Stearns. I acted exactly as a rational person should have. Yeah. I came up with every reason in the world to put on as much risk as possible. I made $75 million dollars. My company went bankrupt, and I walked away with fifty-two million dollars. Like that's a winner. And then, really, if you think about it, none of them ever had any edge. They were all trading randomly. Sure. But they got to, you know, so they set up a, a, they they chose a trading method with a high frequency of winners and a terrible winner to loser ratio. Mm. And they knew, like, if you said to me, "Hey," I got your daughter captive and you need to make twenty percent next year. Period like or the next six months. You sure. gotta make twenty percent and your daughter's captive or or she's done for. Mm. I would immediately start selling options. Sure. Because I know that's the highest likelihood of my making twenty percent. Mm. And my making fifteen and my losing a hundred, they have the same outcome. Sure. My daughter's in trouble. Sure. Sure. Well, that's the that that's a Officer with the, any publicly traded financial firm. Yeah, they there, have basically the same deal. Yeah, is there anything that you worry
0: about, Scott, when you sort of uh, go to sleep at night in terms of risk, and when you when you look at sort of your your own methodology, or, or are you just completely comfortable with you know the way it's designed and and, and tested, or is there something where you can see, yeah, if, if this happened, you know, that that wouldn't be good.
1: Well, sure. I mean, we've got positions in markets, and, and we've had mornings that weren't good. Yeah. Lots of them, and we'll have lots more. Mm. But that I, I think what I try to get comfortable with, and I don't want anybody to sound like I'm the Buddha or something, and I don't have emotional reactions to wins and losses, mm. but w- what I try to get comfortable with is you have to take risk. Mm. In your whole existence, you have to take risk. And so, once you've established the fact that risk exists and I can't avoid it, then I basically say, okay, how can I control it to the point that I'm comfortable with? Like, look, th- this is the most that I can control this thing. You know, I mean, I would tell a client, don't invest more than you can lose. Mm. I don't. So in our own programs, I've gotten an amount invested that if I lost it, I wouldn't like it. Mm. <laughs> I mean, but it, my family and all is going to be more or less okay. Mm. I mean, I don't, and we do. We don't borrow any. I mean, you know, we do think. I mean, I do things to try to be robust. And at the end of the day, I look at it and I say, hey, we have stops in place. I know that we could get gap through them, but are the gaps are, you know. We've got a risk level that I'm comfortable with taking, knowing full and well, if I trade long enough, eventually we'll lose most of what we, you know, have at risk someday. Mm. If you trade long enough, I mean, I, I I would probably take three generations of my trading for that day to occur, but it could occur tomorrow, mm. right? But then the idea is, is that, I mean, you know, there, there's a business side of thing and a trading side of thing. Yeah for my own trading what i realize is is i i don't put every dollar that i could put into our program into the program because if something like that happened i would want to have dry powder left that i could still invest yeah Does that makes sense sure but it to me it's the idea of look you can't take risk out of your existence hmm. particularly financially i mean how uh, those veermark Deutschmarks don't spend very well these days. Like, <laughs> y- y- you know, you-, you just don't know what the next 10 years might hold. Sure. absolutely. Even five years. I mean, well, the one thing you could probably be assured of is things will happen, both good and bad, that are better and worse than you imagined could have happened.
0: Sure,
1: sure. And, and so, that having been said, we take a-, a risk level that we're very comfortable with. Yeah. And And our... Money is at risk side by side with our clients' money, mm. and and you know, I am a big believer in the barbell strategy, which is very little money at risk, but the money that it's at risk is in the most aggressive things that it can be in. Mm. So, you know, I am a in our strategies. I, I and Brince and I both we put all of our money in our optimal strategy. Mm. It doesn't make any – I mean, it sure. really makes very little sense not to Sure. because ultimately, with any manager, any investor, any anything, everything you invest is at risk. Mm. You might think, oh, this guy's never had a drawdown or this thing's never happened. But you put a million bucks in, you got a million bucks at risk. Sure. And that's probably the biggest mistake, in my opinion, that allocators make. They are obsessed with – percentage returns and they forget about dollar Mm. and 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 they say oh well this thing is only has this volatility or this other thing you know and then therefore it can't and i'm gonna put 10 million dollars into that and i think it's i mean it's it's an inarguable point that you shouldn't put two million dollars into something that's just five times as aggressive sure i wanted to not spend too much time because uh,
0: on on research because we we've, we've talked about it already in a sense but but I do want to ask you one thing and that's you're so long term I mean in fact your models can only generate a signal you know once a week uh, so to speak mm-hmm. being so long term I would imagine that it could be difficult to and, and, and that means also doing so few trades uh, relative to other people so I, I'm sort of imagining that actually finding out what to do next in terms of research because it'll take a longer time for you to see the results of what you've already done and so on and so forth looking at the uh, the trading frequency or at least that's my impression how does research sort of what does a research cycle look? like in 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 your world and 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 where where are you looking at the moment
1: well i don't know that that's that your original premise is necessarily the case sure sure we i mean frankly there we're looking at say 50 markets over 30 years of doing our research that'd be 800 market years there won't be enough real time to to conflict with what those results are yeah so in our research we we try to constantly follow a process that looks at the strengths and weaknesses of what we do and and tries to further enhance the strengths and tries to mitigate the weaknesses and you know the initial process we we try to be uh very, you know, kind of open Socratic discussion, mm. and then if there's something that reaches a more formal stage, then we try to be pretty adherent to the scientific method with it, writing a hypothesis and and determining what tests will be done, determining what will would prove the or disprove the hypothesis, you know, and then and then moving forward from there.
0: Mm. But but as a pure trend follower, if I can call you that, where where do you, uh, where do you see the weaknesses in your opinion?
1: Well, we're going to be weak in, at the end of trends. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We could be better at, perhaps better at short trades. We're going to be weak in, in sideways markets. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, it particularly sideways, you know, if there is a trend and then a sideways market we're fine because we're just going to be in it and sit there Mm. but when it's a sideways market that is electing signals that's when we're going to lose money yeah um you know we're going to tend to be weak in in downward trending markets that have kind of short upward spikes that would elicit signals right yeah but as you've noticed what i keep having to mention is the word is elicit signals yeah so lots of times we'll look at things like you know a, a Spike up, it doesn't really. Nothing really matters until it elicits a signal. Mm. But how is the balance between eliciting fewer signals? You know, there are also some advantages to taking more signals. So, Mm. so those kind of market environments. How do we do in those periods? Are you know? Are we mitigating our losses as best we can, or are we are we maximizing our wins is you know, what, what I basically have found is is that if you were a cotton trader, nothing really mattered other than how you traded that move up to almost two dollars a few years ago. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean you could have traded the heck out of it from sixty five to seventy three cents your whole life. But if you got on the wrong side of that, you lost every I think Billy Dunman actually did, every nickel you ever made you lost. Hmm. You see what I mean? Sure. And so if you were a mortgage trader, it doesn't matter how you did other than 2008 did you get out. Right. And so I'm a pretty big believer that it is the handling of the large moves is sort of all that matters. Right, yeah. And that, you know, when we take a losing trade, we lose, in essence, one unit of risk. Mm. But a winning trade might get up you know, I might be I might be up forty units, and my stop might be down at up twenty units. Yeah. Well, that one trade is the equivalent of twenty losers. Yeah. And if I got twice the position size on, that might make an eighty unit or a forty unit. You see what I mean? Sure, sure. So it's the the management and and position size and stop and creating that kind of stuff. It's the management of your of your huge winners. The, those are super impactful mm. and, and so those there's other places is, is how can you manage those better intra trade that kind of thing I mean obviously, I mean I mean, you see what I mean like if I were able to avoid five losing trades sure. well, if I could just capture a quarter of that extra profit on that big one I just mentioned yeah. that eviscerates being able to live, you know those five losing trades,
0: yeah. What's a good win ratio for you?
1: Uh thirty. Okay. Percent thirty-three.
0: Okay. Now on the sort of more business side of things, I mean, you mentioned that Nashville is uh, a difficult place to to. Uh, I mean, great music, but maybe a difficult place <laughs> to uh, to be a CTA. And um, we talked about the long time frame and the patience that you're asking investors to have, which doesn't make it easier is that your biggest challenge uh, that uh, that you have and, and and how are you overcoming
1: this well we don't have any desire to ever be the biggest manager in the world or in in any that's not our goal
0: then let me interrupt you there and then rephrase it a little bit because uh, in a sense, you've got a great business uh, today. You've got lots of assets on the management. And, and you could argue that with the with the clients you have, you don't need to be bigger. But a little while back, you definitely wanted to be bigger. And you had the same challenges, meaning you were still in Nashville and you were yeah. still long term. So how did you overcome it at that time?
1: Well, and we, I mean, the reason we need to be bigger now is that is that you know that whenever you have a losing period, you're going to lose clients. Sure. And you never know, you know, your main contact at a big fund of funds takes another job, sure, or retire, you know. So I mean, you need to build a buffer, and and we, and we wouldn't mind being, I'd say, growing once again, or you know, you know, I, I really look, you know, for in fact, our original and aggressive and optimal programs, if if you normalize their size to original, if they're at a hundred and Seventy-five million or whatever, mm. we probably wouldn't mind being five hundred million. So there, okay. there's more growth that that we would like to have. Okay. Um, so, so how do we get there? How things? do we get there? Is is we have to understand who we are and and who we're not. Yeah, and we have to understand that we're a boutique. We are going to be attractive to certain people, and and there are other people that we're never going to be attractive to. Right, and that. They, and, and we need to not spend any resources and time or money or whatever trying to chase those people that, you know, I do not have a science degree from an Ivy League institution, nor am I going to. Mm. And so I could hire a bunch of people that did. But ultimately, that's just not a, a place in which we're attempting to fight. Right. We think that we are a very attractive option for a certain number of investors and that there are enough of those investors for us to manage the amount of money we'd like to. Mm. And so we need to make sure that those investors know that we exist. Right. And they know that we exist so that when they decide that they want some exposure to what we do, that they're aware of us Mm. and that they have a, a positive image of us and that they have an accurate image of us.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think investors like the most about you? If I can ask you that question, well, or let me put it this way: when you do get investors on board, what do you think convinced them that this this is something I should be invested in? Because the trend following space is it can be very very hard to distinguish one you know strategy from another. They on the surface, can look very similar, yet they're probably not. But what what do you think people latch on to when they look at you guys? I mean, is it? It could also be personal. I mean, personal reasons,
1: you know. I other than my charming personality. That's I uh, <laughs> I think. I mean, ultimately, we've done better than most trend followers. Right. And and I think ultimately that's is something people are attracted to. Hmm. Uh, I think secondly that. Yeah, even maybe even primarily, and in addition, I think there are certain people that are attracted to the boutique. Right. There are a lot of uh, academic type articles that have come out in the last couple of years that make some pretty strong, persuasive arguments for managers that are exactly the way we would de- define boutique. Right. They're small enough to still be able to be nimble and use their trading strategies, but they're large enough that you don't have to, that they're not working out of their their mom's garage. Yeah. And so that there are some pretty strong arguments there and that and that so as those people if you're a fund to fund or an allocator or somebody like that as you're trying to differentiate yourself from your peers they have to look at it and say okay well if i go invest with the same eight giant managers i, I can't do better than the guys i'm trying to compete with mm. so i have to offer something different yeah. if you're a huge uh, and the, you know these aren 't really the people we go after, but if you 're a large pensiony kind of person, mm-hmm. you might look at it and say, "You know what i 've got a lot of trend following beta from these giant managers. I can get that through one of these one and zero mutual funds i 'm going to go out and get some more spe- you know a, a group of more specialized or or of boutique guys that can maybe deliver a little bit different return stream." The other thing where we found that we have the most success is, is that the closer we are to the person whose money it really is, the better we tend to do. Mm. So if you're a consultant that's consulting a fund to fund, who's, you know, and there are nine different intermediaries between the owners of the money and the trades being made, that doesn't tend to be our best prospect. Mm. But if it's your money, they tend to like us a lot better Mm. because then they aren't Thinking about how can I explain this to my investment board if it doesn't go well? Mm. They are thinking: Does this guy have my best interest at heart? Is this guy honest? And does what he's saying make sense?
0: Yeah.
1: You see what I mean? Sure. And and those are far different. And and I don't hear that as critical of one or the other. Mm. They're far different people with a far different set of motivations. Mm. But we have found that the closer we are to the actual money the better we the, the better our message sounds and so it's uh, you know our job is to, to I mean our job is to run our business economically enough that, that we don't need 500 million dollars to run it mm. that we can thrive as a business with 50 million dollars sure. so we try to do that and then we need to make sure that the people who will find us interesting know about us
0: yeah speaking of investors um when you meet them when you talk to them what are the questions that they are not asking you that you think that they really should ask you
1: i don't think they ask enough qualitative questions like what Um, like what give me an example what what how many parameters do you use in your method right If you changed your parameters by 5%, what kind of effect does that have on your returns? Mm. Let me see your back adjusted returns. Okay, now I want you to change this parameter and this one by 8% one way and 4% the other way. Let me see those. Would you do that? Well, sure. Okay. I mean, mean, because now I'm speaking to robustness. Mm. Why did you pick the number that you picked?
2: Mm.
1: Meaning if I'm... If I'm using a 50 day window for whatever, whatever, well, how did I pick 50? Yeah. Well, how does 49 do? Mm. How's 45 do? How does 40 do?
2: Mm.
1: And what you know, you're what you really hoping for there is a is a smooth kind of plateau. Sure. And hopefully they've picked in the middle. That vein of question that that pushes out for repeatability and robustness as opposed to how do you protect your server? Well, what if somebody breaks into your office and gets Jonah's laptop? Mm. And again, those are fine questions. I mean, you need to you need to thought <laughs> of that. But there does seem to be a bit of you know we'll have entire weekends on operational due diligence, mm. and then the trading due diligence is pretty. You get about the same thing every time. Yeah. I would also say is that I I think probably they should have people with trading experience running those, not allocation, actual, that have done their own trading, and and then they could bring up other pitfalls. Mm. For instance, if we traded a lot, they should say, how do you handle costs? Mm. We don't trade a lot, so the weakness of not trading a lot is we don't get a lot of compounding. We don't get enough instances. Mm. So they would say, okay, so one of the weaknesses of your model is – since you are what I found in trading there's never a give without a take mm. so I want to minimize my cost to gross trade outcome ratio Right. and to do that I'm going to have to give up the number of instances I get in a given time period of course it, number one am I even aware of that
0: yeah sure
1: and, and I would guess you know que- questions along, along those lines line. sure I think you've hit on some interesting things like when did you make these changes? I think looking at a back test of the current model rather than – not rather than, in combination with the the realized returns, getting into what were your luckiest periods. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's true. Like, oh, well, you, you know, what were your least lucky periods? Yeah, yeah. If you really wanted to get into it, I would get in. I would take each parameter out. Look at them individually, look at them. And, you know, I don't know that we would. That's the way I would. You know, when those guys come to me, I mean, the first thing that happens when people come to me with their methods and they're always short term is I always say, okay, what's your winning percentage? Mm. It's always over 50. Mm. What's your winner loser ratio? Oh, it's two to one. Mm. I'm like, so you make 60% of your winners and it's two to one and you do 6,000 trades a year. (laughs) Yeah. And then I go, why are you talking to me, yeah, because if you took twenty five thousand dollars and traded that for nine months, you would have eighty six billion dollars, mm. and it's literally always something like that, <laughs> and like so and maybe that does work. I, I'm not saying it doesn't, but, sure. you certainly don't need me, you need twenty five grand, yeah, in fact like ten grand I mean <laughs> you know and, and so you know, that's usually it, and then if it gets past that, I'll say, okay well. What's your first input? Mm. I don't. It's proprietary. I'm like, okay. Well, you don't have to tell me what it is, but tell me what the edge of this input is. Right. What is this input versus trades without this input? Mm. You don't even need to. You see what I mean? Yeah. Walking through that piece by piece for each parameter. You know, I would never take you know limited parameters. Do you trade this on all markets mm. no the only the s p well does it work on the dow and the nasdaq i mean hopefully that one at least is yes <laughs> but does it work on euro stocks and Nikkei? i mean maybe you could make an argument that equity markets you know why well, have you tried it on silver well why you know you know that kind of thing again towards robustness mm. i want to jump
0: to sort of the last section of uh, of our conversation and i I call it general and fun and uh, it's partly sharing your experience partly getting to know certain things about yourself but I want to start off by just asking I mean you've been there you've done it and um, you've seen probably you know both all the ups and, and all the downs what what advice would you give to someone aspiring to start today you know 15 years after you started and with a Probably a different, uh, you know, it's a, it's a different ball game out there today. What, what advice would you, uh, would you give them?
1: Well, I would probably, I would talk first about their business plan. Do you have enough money, enough operational capital to last for five years without any income? Right. If you don't, you need to go raise that. Yeah. That's going to be, prime. I mean, that, that alone is going to solve a lot of your problems. Uh, What are your goals? How big do you want to be? Mm. If you want to be giant, do you have the, you know, they talk about the pedigree and things like that. Like, at the end of the day, was your grandfather rich enough for you to be that, you you know, like, do you have those kind of connections that that that's reasonable? Mm. And if not, then you probably need to change your goals back. Yeah. Because I can promise you, you could return 30% a year for a decade, I mean, maybe not. For but in 1999, if you had told me we did as well trading as we've done, I would have thought that I would have had probably a hundred times more money than I have. Yeah. And that isn't to say. I mean, we've been successful. It's great. Sure. I'm. But but if you'd said, oh well, you'll do this over this period, I'd have been like, oh well, I'll have my own Learjet. Like. Yeah. And so, first is you got to make sure you got enough money to let your business. You know, I think about the old Charlie Brown. Do you guys know Charlie Brown? Sure. That Christmas, the old Christmas tree, when they hang that ornament on it and it droops all the way over. I think if any new business is like a small tree, it cannot take a tire swing yet. Right. And the needing to support a family and yourself on that kind of income from that business is like a tire swing. Mm. So by having enough operational capital that you can exist for, I uh, like five years, that's going to give your tree time to sprout roots and grow and, and not put immediate pressure on it. Mm. Do you have, you know, in the partners that you've brought in, or, you know, if there is a team, do you have a, a sales, a person that's kind of more a natural born salesman? Mm. If so, that's going to be useful. Do you have somebody that has a reputable science degree that's going to be useful uh can you program and uh, you know i'm none of these things but <laughs> but uh in other words look at me and then do the opposite um because programming is you know that's going to be an irreplaceable tool sure
0: is part of your success just out of curiosity and and this is with the warmest intention i asked this question mm-hmm. is part of the success in a partnership the fact in a sense that you and Prince actually live apart do you know what i mean it's kind of like you know uh, in a marriage you know sometimes you do need
1: to get away from <laughs> each other to yeah. uh, to make it work brince and i were really good friends before we were business partners yeah and before becoming business partners we spent a lot of time making sure that our philosophies and goals for the company matched yeah and we still spend a lot of time every year going over what are your goals for this company what are your goals personally where are you financially? Mm. In our operating agreement, neither one of us is allowed to take on personal debt without the others okay. Right. And and so I think we were pretty smart in laying that stuff out. We've written every, you know, even though we were friends, yeah. we wrote every agreement down. Because yeah. you forget.
0: Yeah.
1: Our outlooks on things matched very well from the get-go. Mm. And we have spent a lot of time making certain that, you know when we started the business we were both single and i could live in a you know 55 square foot apartment sure. with occasionally running water yeah. and <laughs> and you know now, you know when you start adding families and children and and as those things change we need to stay on top of you know before scott managing 150 million was enough for you mm. is that or is that too much yeah would you rather, you, you know, because that's going to come with more time. I mean, you know, sure. how do you want this to be? I mean, we uh, we existed, we didn't hire. We probably existed for seven or eight years before we hired our first employee. Yeah, and now we have them do things that we would rather not spend time doing. Sure, uh, you know, and and so and we've hired them for skill sets that that they have that we don't. Mm. So I I think a a very honest and making sure that you. Fit. There are definitely people who I like a lot as people mm. that I could never be business partners with. Yeah. And if Brinson my financial goals diverged sharply, mm. you know that you know that would that we'd have to really spend time talking what that about what that meant.
0: Yeah.
1: Because you know the the size of firm you're going for is gonna is gonna. You know, if Brent said, you know what, I want to buy the Cubs, and so I need to make two billion dollars.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, we're gonna then have to, you know, then now stuff's gonna have to change. You know, like gonna have to change, gonna have to change a lot. Yeah. And then we're gonna have to, you know, hire and, and and I don't know that I'd be necessarily that psyched about a lot. You know, I mean that 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 would be very different. Or if he said, you know what, Scott, I. I'd be perfectly happy trading $10 million.
0: Sure.
1: Well, I want to manage more than that. You know, so, you know, although I can remember the day when managing $10 million seemed like, oh my gosh, if I could ever just manage $10 million, it would just be. And so, you know, I I think all of those things have to match very well on a business side.
2: Mm.
1: And so, you know, the advice I would give someone is first you have to go through your trading model Mm. like that then you've got to go through your business plan like Mm. that but i would probably if they had designs on being you know a 10 billion dollar firm unless they were well connected and already had the the you know the things that help you up that ladder i would strongly discourage it yeah and in fact, in general, I would probably discourage it now. It, it's a, it's a hard business to, to, well, I mean, it pays a lot, so it's you know, it's like being an actor, like you know, it, sure. it's it's hard, and you need some, you're gonna need some good luck, yeah, because you're not gonna attract any money until you have a couple lucky years, sure, because your expected isn't gonna be good enough, because someone's gonna be getting lucky, yeah, you see what I mean, sure, sure. And and you know, so I, I think that rather than starting it the way we did, it's probably advisable to spend some time working with some smaller and then larger firms, and try and making those kind of contacts and trying to spin it out from there. Hmm. Do you have
0: any personal habits that you uh, think have been part of your success? Something you do every day, uh, or or maybe your di- maybe your discipline?
1: I don't know what it might be. I. You know, a lot of people try to, I read some books and things, that, that a lot of people try to make trading out to be something that's almost like mystical. <laughs> and I'm sure in your travels you've run it, I'm not a big, I, I don't go for that. Mm. I, You know, to me, again, it gets down to something pretty simple. You've got to have a non-random way of entering and exiting markets. Mm. From there, you have to appropriately risk given the amount of edge or non-randomness you can capture yeah the more you've got and and winning percentage does come into play here but the more you've got the little bit more you can risk and more importantly then you've got to have the discipline to follow the thing that you know works I mean the greatest poker player in the world if he didn't make the plays that he knew, were the proper ones wouldn't be the greatest poker player. You see what I mean? Absolutely. So you've got to have the discipline. Or I don't know that I have the discipline. So I've created a system, yeah. Rather than making discretionary decisions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and you know what? And I mean, now we have hired someone that actually makes the trading that does the actual trades, mm-hmm. and so that further gets it away from my emotions and the and one of the co-system creators, etc. Um, but once you've got those things, and they are, I mean, I think they're simple, but difficult. Sure. I don't think you need to get into this super psychological, or I, I mean. No, no, that—that Those things are great. I mean, you know, I, I, I will say that trading's, an ex- I read an interesting book on the biology of trading. Right. And it went into the. Electrochemical reactions that are going on, and testosterone, and cortisol, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, it's a very stressful endeavor, mm. and and it's it's unlike other things in that I can't just start working harder to try to do better. Right. So, I mean, I think that probably good health, in in eating properly, exercising, are, are probably advisable. Mm. It is a a profession that can lend itself. To, I mean, I think you particularly want to avoid substance abuse, and and there's probably, you know, certainly down on the floor that kind of stuff was was out of hand. Yeah. But you know, there's this kind of cowboy mentality that goes with it. That's really a myth. But but that you would probably want to, not, you know, you want to avoid that stuff anyways. But you particularly would want to avoid it if you were being a, if you were a trader. Sure. You know, I, I think that keeping your you know, what I would call your brain chemistry, keeping your, yourself healthy is something I, you know, pay particular attention to. And, and it's possibly helped me, but I mean, that doesn't mean that a 400 pound chain smoker couldn't also follow our system. So I, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know. And I, you know, I think it's funny, like the, oh, I play chess with somebody. You see, I, I, you know, I don't know about all that. I mean, I, I remember know. on the floor, we would give them a pretty basic, a few pretty basic. I mean, I think you need to have an analytical mind. You need to be good with probabilistic thinking. And I think you need to be, there's a balance, I mean, getting out of losing trades is pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> and so you need to not be so arrogant that you can't stand. I mean, I lose 70% of our sure, trades. Sure. So you got to be okay with, with admitting when you're wrong. And, and it, you know, but, but I think a probabilistic is the best way to look at it where you realize like, you know, if you take sports, like, if a coach makes a decision and the team wins, that doesn't make that decision right. Mm. It, it could make the wrong decision. The team could have gotten lucky and won. You need to think of it as if we played this game from this point on 10,000 times and he made this decision 5,000 and he didn't make this decision 5,000, what are the outcomes there? I would say if your general thought process lends itself to that way of thinking, you you probably have a have a you know, you'd, you'd probably rather have that characteristic than not.
0: Sure. I've only got actually two questions left that I wanted to uh, briefly ask you. And and one is, you know, very simple, whether there is a fun fact that you can share about yourself, maybe even something that Brince does not know about you, even though you spend hours and hours together and know each other. Is there anything that you uh, can think of?
1: I did not have a cell phone until I was 30, 40 years old okay and my wife was i did not get married till late in life and and my wife was pregnant with our daughter and she finally said listen this silliness has to end <laughs> yeah. uh, but so i did not i am in general a i much prefer a, a pad and paper and pencil yeah to you know i had to go out and buy this headset today yeah. <laughs> to <laughs> to you. and i had you know i'm a. I had Skype, but I had one other person on it. I had yeah. one friend that that wanted me to to Skype him to look at something, sure. and actually, he was an aspiring trader. He wanted me to be able to look at his computer, yeah. and so I, maybe the fun fact is I didn't have a cell phone until I was forty.
0: As long as you have an iPhone, so that you can listen to this podcast on your iPhone, that's.
1: Uh, I I do not have an iPhone, <laughs> but I will. Uh, I'm sure that that. Android or whomever does my thing exactly. make it available for me.
0: Fantastic. Now, final question. Now, I asked you earlier today, you know, what are investors missing when they're trying to talk to you and, and discuss uh, things around you? What did I miss today, if anything? What uh, did I do you justice and, and covenant justice in our conversation?
1: I think so. I think you actually did a did a great job in hitting on things that I think are interesting. I think we did a great job of staying away from your typical due diligence. I don't remember mentioning a single statistic about Covenant, which I think is is great, good. And I think you you have obviously done this before and and there's nothing that I can think of that that uh, I thought this was very well done. Great. Thank you so much. Bye. Conversational, low key, you know, I don't like the hard press selling and and over-promoting and over-trumpeting of things. And I think we've been able to sit around and talk about Covenant and our history and trading and certainly offer opinions and and things without, you know, banging our chest about some sharp ratio. (laughs) Great stuff. Now, but before we finish, though... um,
0: could you tell our listeners uh, where they can best uh, reach out to you and, and learn more about you and Covenant?
1: Sure. Our, I mean, the website is covenantcap.com. Uh, I think the best way to get a general, you know, it's written in the same method and that we have a lot of papers on there that we've written in various opinions about different things. We try not to just throw up a bunch of statistics on somebody and you know if somebody went there and found it interesting and and wanted to talk further about investment uh, i think a, a call to the head office in nashville would be the
0: second step great stuff and of course our listeners can also find all the details about our conversation today in the show notes uh, for this episode on top traders on and I I also want to mention that for those who listen to this, who are on the mailing list, they will receive uh, an email where there is a link. And this link can be used to say thank you to Scott for sharing his story, his expertise. And I really encourage you to do so. So let me be the first, Scott, to say thank you ever so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it was incredibly interesting to to uh, take a different approach like we did today, um, but still be incredibly transparent and, uh, and sharing your insights about uh, what you feel strongly about. And I think for people who listen carefully, they would have picked up quite a lot of really important information. So uh, I do appreciate that. And, and I hope we can connect at a later date and, and see how, how things are working out.
1: Great, Niels. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, I really like these uh, interviews you're putting forward. And and thanks again. You're welcome. All the best, Scott. Take care. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Top Traders Unplugged. We'd love for you to be a part of our community. So head over to toptradersunplugged.com and let us know what you thought of this episode in the comments section of the show notes. Take action, get involved, and suggest who you would like to see as a future guest on the show or how you think we can improve. Constructive comments will be rewarded with 30 days of free access to our premium member area. So head over there now, and we'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.